Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. The question is, how do we implement them? And how do we implement them consistently? And it starts with hiring, right? It starts with uh, even writing a job description. How do you write a job description that is widely encouraging of people, all kinds of people to apply? I have done a lot of research about that because I have several open positions even today at our company because we are so fast growing. And I had to think about how do I write job descriptions? It starts there to your hiring manager training. And it also, like I said, after you hire, it's about how do you ask your team members to bring their authentic selves to the table with their different perspectives. And after that, what do you do with those lived experiences, right? Like I said, so everything, all those other different factors are proxy for your diverse perspectives. That was Sri Srinivasan, founder and CEO of Chargeback Gurus, and she is our special guest on this episode, episode 153 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. Moving right along with Diversity and Inclusion Month, my guest this week refers to herself as a global citizen with a broad range of diverse experience and an entrepreneurial career that all started with one question. Software outsourcing is huge. Do you want to start a business? As I'm sure you can imagine, the answer was yes. And this led Chargeback Guru's founder and CEO, Sri Srinivasan, down a wildly successful entrepreneurial path that has started with a diamond merchant. In this episode, we discuss not only her business model, go-to-market strategy, and niche offering, we also talk a lot about what she does to proactively ensure DE&I is embedded in her organization. Among the many things we discussed around DE&I, one of the most interesting to me is this concept around diversity, including not only employees, but customers, stakeholders, and investors as well. It's a concept that starts from the top down and must include every touch point the company has. In order to make it truly successful, DE&I has to be in the corporate DNA. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Shri, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. And as you know, this episode is part of our special series of the Leaders in Payments podcast about diversity and inclusion. So, Shri, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for inviting me to be here. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Sure. I was born and raised in India, went to school there and got a degree in computer science. And I had a very diverse and great childhood where I was exposed to the U.S. culture as a young child because we had family in California and we used to visit the U.S. every now and then and stay for extended periods of time. And my parents made sure that we got a well-rounded exposure to the world, both the East and the West. And I'm a first-generation immigrant as well. I've also been an avid reader right from childhood, and that has continued till today. My father was a university professor. My mom was a teacher. So I have an educational background, and it's been a huge part of my life. Since I have a tech background, I thought that I would go into programming and go that route. However, I became an entrepreneur. So I'm both an entrepreneur and a techie at heart. And I've been uh, very fortunate to be able to combine those two passions in all my businesses. Okay. And where are you currently based? We are based in McKinney, Texas, outside of Dallas. 
So how did you get from many visits in California to McKinney, Texas? That's a good question. Like I said, as a child, we used to visit and education was a very important factor in my life. So I was going to do my master's after my bachelor's degree. I ended up getting a job at that time for personal reasons. And it was a teaching job. And when I started teaching computer science at an educational institution, my boss, he took great interest in me and he helped me understand the ropes in business, so to speak. He's the first one who even ignited that entrepreneurship passion in me by asking a very simple question. Shri, software outsourcing is huge. Do you want to start a business? And I remember thinking, sure, and not so sure of myself, but I was just telling him, why not, Glenn? I'll do it. And that's how it got started. And we had several business ventures. I also have a business partner and life partner, Suresh. And so we organically started businesses that solved certain challenges we faced and our clients faced. And then we moved to Texas about 12 years ago because there was a lot of opportunity here in Texas as well. And we could actually run the business from anywhere. That's how we ended up in Wikini, Texas. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about Chargeback Gurus. Absolutely. Let me start with a story about a diamond merchant. We had a diamond merchant who lost about $20,000 in one chargeback because a customer, a known customer, had just returned the merchandise, but they found out it was an exact replica. And when the merchant refused to give the money back, the customer just filed a chargeback. So the merchant was out of the money and also they got out of the merchandise. So basically they contacted us and reached out for our help and we were able to recover the dispute back. And we also helped them institute certain business processes that would solve these returns, fraud, and other challenges. And that's what we do for all merchants. As you know, e-commerce businesses are pretty much any business that accepts card not present transactions or known to lose up to 15% of their revenue due to these bogus credit card disputes and fraud. And a lot of businesses don't know how to solve this problem, how to recover these losses. They also don't know how to prevent these losses in the first place. And that's why our clients rely on us to solve this puzzle. We have been in business for over eight years. We have helped thousands of merchants recover over $1.5 billion in Ross revenue. Not only that, we have proactively prevented up to 50% of disputes from happening in the first place. So if you are a business that does e-commerce or card not present transactions, you need us. If you don't solve the issue, it gets worse. And that's the complex problem that you're solving. Okay. And how do you go to market? Do you have like a, a sales team or do you go through a partnership channel? How do you go to market? We do both. We have a robust partnership channel. It's one for our Biggest clients have come through the partnership channel, and we also have a sales team for direct merchants. We have great online presence. We go to a lot of trade shows and conferences, and I mentioned my educational background, right? So we are first and foremost merchant advocates. We're all about educating people on how to protect themselves and why this is a huge problem and what they can do to recover lost revenue. So through all of these avenues, we reach out and go to market and reach out to not just small and medium businesses, but also to Fortune 500 of the world. And so you mentioned e-commerce only, which obviously makes sense given your business, but are there verticals within e-commerce that you focus more on? We are agnostic to verticals, to geographic regions, you name it. However, we have had clients from many different industries like telecom, like health and beauty, and also streaming services, theaters, subscription-based businesses, you name it. We have a wide variety of clients from different industries, including even utilities and power companies that face chargebacks. Think of every merchant or business you do business with as a consumer. 
most likely, I guarantee they face chargebacks and fraud or any other payments challenges. So could you connect the dots between your sort of education background and chargebacks? What's the story and sort of what led you into this sort of payments slash fintech world we live in today? You know what? That's a very insightful question because I always like to say, you don't go to school for chargebacks. I never did. (laughs) You know, when I first got a rough, rude introduction to chargebacks, there's literally no help except an 800 number. And even they were of no help except telling me, just go read the letter that you got in the mail. But uh, during those days of snail mail and no social media, by the time I got the letter, the money was already out. So basically, my educational background, like I said, led me to my first job as a professor of computer science, as my background is in computer science. And then I met my mentor who helped me start my first business. So I have been a serial entrepreneur, and I started my journey very early on in my career. And with my partner, we have started several business ventures that have been successful in both the B2B and the B2C world. And it's going on more than 18 years now. So one of the first ventures we started was an international call center for customer service revenue center. And we faced our first chargebacks when a business client who had been using our services successfully filed chargebacks for all of their charges. Like I said, I got a letter in the mail, but that time the money was already out of my bank account and there was nobody to help me understand or navigate this deep, dark, mysterious world of chargebacks. So I took the time to educate myself and I gathered all of the evidence. We fought the chargebacks and we won every single dispute. That's when a light bulb went off and we began asking our clients about their chargebacks or any other fraud payments challenges they have. And clients started talking to us. They were just writing it off as a cost of doing business. So we started helping our merchants fight and win these chargebacks. And we learned a lot, gained a lot of experience and knowledge through all the trial and error we did. And eventually our clients started relying on us to solve all of their payment challenges beyond chargebacks and fraud, like um, high decline rates, like understanding payment processing. What are the rules and regulations? How do you control fraud beyond friendly fraud? What is friendly fraud? What's true fraud? Those are the challenges that they had. And they came to us with all their payments challenges. And through all of their ideas, challenges, questions, we learned a lot about not just chargebacks and fraud, but about payments. And when we saw this need, there's a tremendous need among all these merchants for a service that would solve these challenges we decided that we were going to charge specifically a chargeback company. And that's how we got started in 2014 with our new brand name, their new company, Chargeback Gurus. And at that time, we were one of the very first companies to come to market with, with a fully compliant solution. Because even today, as we are speaking, there's maybe a handful of companies in the whole world that are doing this at a large scale successfully, especially serving the Fortune 500s of the world and also the SMBs of the world. And with that education, right, I told you I come from an education background as well as a tech background. That's why we are passionate about educating both ourselves and merchants about this ever-changing world of payment regulations, this compliance. And also that's one of the main reasons our clients value our services. Okay, great. So you mentioned that there are some competitors out there. So what would you say makes Chargeback Gurus different? I would say that Chargeback Gurus is known for two things. Number one, It's a complete comprehensive white glove service when it comes to chargebacks, fraud, and payments. When it comes to recovery, prevention, process optimization, client satisfaction, retention, our clients don't have to solve this complex puzzle. We solve the puzzle for them so that they can focus on what they are good at. That's what we are known for. 
I mean, like I said, there's been a huge shift, especially during the pandemic, to the CNP world and fraud and chargeback have shifted. It's never been easier to file a chargeback, which is a couple of clicks in a couple of minutes. So this is where we shine. We have successfully helped businesses prevent, fight, and win these chargebacks and fraud. Like I said, not only do we fight chargebacks, the real value is we are helping businesses prevent chargebacks and fraud from happening in the first place. Our motto has always been prevent what you can and fight what you can't. And that's where we shine. Number two, the chargeback and fraud challenges cannot be solved by just one person or one company. You have to take a collaborative approach. And what do I mean by that? We need to get the buy-in of the multiple payments process ecosystem players. We need to get the buy-in of card networks like Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover. We need to get the buy-in from merchants, from payment processors. And also we need to get in the buy-in from issuers. So there are so many parties involved here, but the question is, who is responsible for tying all these parties together and solving this big puzzle? That's where we come in. We are at the forefront of doing this. We bring all of these parties together. We discuss the challenges that merchants face with them. Take a 360 degree, like I said, holistic approach, because we want to make sure that our merchant is getting the best possible solution from us. And I believe that we are the only company who's taking this holistic approach. So to not only recover lost revenue, by the way, our merchants love that because we provide direct ROI from the first month, but we're also great at identifying the root causes of these chargebacks and helping merchants understand why they're happening and how they can prevent these chargebacks and fraud from happening in the first place. That's awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain to the audience exactly what you do and, and what makes it unique and different. But if you don't mind, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about diversity and inclusion. That's the purpose of this month. We always dedicate the month of March to diversity and inclusion. If you don't mind, tell us at a 50,000 foot level, what does it mean to you or how do you define diversity and inclusion? First off, thank you for doing this series. I think it's much needed and it's a topic of discussion that goes beyond just being a buzzword. So thank you for that. To me, diversity truly is a melting pot. Like I said, I grew up in India and India is technically one country, but really it's not. Every state is like a different country, even with different languages, different customs, different food, everything could be different. So I grew up in a truly diverse country and that's why it's called a subcontinent. And then I was also introduced to the West. I've traveled around the world internationally and I have seen diversity firsthand. It's truly about radical acceptance of all the differences in our life experiences, no matter who it is. To me, these factors like gender, race, ethnicity, education, and all the other factors are just proxy for diverse lived experiences and perspectives, right? So like I said, it's personal to me because my life experiences in two different continents on opposite sides of the world have shaped my worldview and I consider myself a global citizen. And I've experienced multiple cultures and I bring all of that to the table in an authentic way. I want my team, when I work with the team, to also bring their authentic selves to the table. And when I said bringing themselves to the table, right, to me, it's not just about having a seat at the table. It's also about having a voice at the table that is heard and listened to. And I believe that's why, you know, diversity by itself may not work, but you also have to marry it to equity and inclusion, which is having those voices that are being heard and listened to while these decisions, crucial business decisions are being made. It's interesting because this is the third year we've done the series and the first year and I don't even know if the second year, I don't think either year I heard the term lived experiences, but I've heard it twice now in the interviews that I've done for this month. 
So it seems like there's a shift in, and I won't say it's a major shift, but I think maybe it is a little bit of a shift away from, to your point, race and ethnicity and, and those things to more of an experience type of diversity. So it's kind of interesting that, and I don't know if that's a broader trend across other spaces or not, but it's certainly something that when you said that term, it's like, oh, wow, that's the second time I've heard that. And I don't remember hearing that before. So I think that's kind of interesting. Any thoughts on that? I agree that it's interesting. Every time I've done an interview or had some type of speaking engagement or just talking to colleagues that were strangers in the beginning and that become good friends and mentors, I've heard that, yes, diversity is important. And I have been considered diverse from the beginning, right? I used to think that it was a buzzword in the beginning, like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. But now, like you said, it's being talked about in a very real way, realistic way. Because we can all talk about it. We all understand the concept, right? The question is, how do we implement them? And how do we implement them consistently? And it starts with hiring, right? It starts with uh, even writing a job description. How do you write a job description that is widely encouraging of people, all kinds of people to apply I have done a lot of research about that because I have several open positions even today at our company because we are so fast growing. And I had to think about how do I write job descriptions? It starts there to your hiring manager training. And it also, like I said, after you hire, it's about how do you ask your team members to bring their authentic selves to the table with their different perspectives? And after that, what do you do with those lived experiences, right? Like I said, so everything, all those other different factors are proxy for your diverse perspectives. Because a lot of times, you know, I've hired people from different industries. A lot of our team members are not even from payments. Because tell me, how can you find people who specialize in chargebacks when it's such a new field? So when you talk about people from different Completely different industries. I've even hired somebody who used to manage a psychologist's office, but she's very tech savvy and she did a great job for us, right? But they, she brought a different perspective that I hadn't thought about when I was making some decisions. So it's about actively engaging and inviting people that have these perspectives that you've never even considered. And it's also about advocating for those people who are underrepresented and sometimes they may not have had the opportunities that you had. So to recognize that and to actively engage them, I think, is part of having that lived experience. Yeah, I love that. Our industry is made up of small, medium, large companies. The large companies that I talk to, they have very prescriptive diversity and inclusion programs. They may even have someone titled as the head of diversity and inclusion. Our industry has a lot of small and medium-sized companies. So how does a small to medium-sized company make sure that they're keeping diversity and inclusion a priority? I mean, I loved your example you already gave about the job description. That was something I hadn't really thought about, but that's a great example. But as a medium-sized company, how do you view DNI and make it sure it's a priority across everything you do? That's a great question that requires a lot of self-reflection for anybody who's contemplating this. Like you said, you know, large companies have sometimes teams of people that are specifically focused on this full time. As a fast growing mid market company, we have always been diverse since our inception, even as a startup. Initially, we did not even have written policies and procedures for DNI, right? But that's how we lived and practiced. And you know, we walked the walk and we intentionally made it a point to hire, to train and to include people from different backgrounds, experiences, industries, age groups and generations, religions, nationalities. Like I said, we are a global team. So I have teams in India. 
I have teams in, across the U.S. in multiple states, and I have teams across Europe. I work with many, many countries. I've worked with Dominican Republic in the past, and we have a client in uh, LATAM. That's one thing that companies also need to think about. It's not just about employees and team members, but look at all the stakeholders in your company. Look at the clients. We have clients in Europe. We have clients in LATAM. We have clients across North America. We are going to go after Australia and India and LATAM. How do you manage a diverse clientele in addition to a diverse team? That's something that as a company, we are very intentional about. As a fast-growing company, we had to be nimble on our feet. And I realized that DNA does not require a budget. It's not just an opportunity that can be addressed simply by throwing money at it, right? At our company, it starts from the top. We hire and train our leaders to recognize the importance of DNI and what it means to us. And we also require them to uphold these values in their day-to-day interactions. That's very important to me personally. I know how important it is to have a consistent culture of diversity, belonging, and safety, right? Because I always tell my team, I want to run a people-centric company. What does that mean? It means we consider all the stakeholders that are involved, customers, employees, partners, vendors, anyone inside and outside the organization. When I'm considering these stakeholders, when I'm making business decisions, there are several questions I ask myself and self-reflect on. For instance, does everyone that walks through the door feel safe and respected? Are they heard? If not, how do we address it? When we go hire somebody, are we affording every person that we interview the same interview experience regardless of our first impression, regardless of you know our personal biases that are top of mind? Because if there's one thing we know, it's just that diverse perspectives, capabilities are what drive the rapid growth that we have experienced as a company. We are no longer a startup, but I like to say we have a startup mentality and we're nimble and fast and we have people around us that bring these different perspectives because, you know something, Greg, this industry did not even exist a few years ago. And as one of the top leading providers in this industry, we are forging a path in this industry and creating a niche within the fintech, within the payments world as we speak. And so I didn't have a lot of examples before me on how to do it. But since we've always had that mentality, we started addressing these challenges right from the very beginning. And I'm very proud of the fact that in our team, I would say that we have always been at least 90% diverse in our company. When we're prioritizing, when you're building a team that accurately reflects the community we serve, we are going to get these powerful, fresh and compelling ideas from not only employees, Greg, but also from customers. See, we have grown, we have created new solutions that never even existed in the marketplace about chargebacks for our payments, because we have also a very customer-centric company, and customers come to us with their challenges, any payment challenges they have. They talk to us very openly, we ask very open-ended questions. They give us these perspectives that we may not have thought about, right? Because they're the ones who are facing these challenges. And when we talk to our customers, we go back, like I said, talk to the payments ecosystem, card networks, issuers. And wherever you go, Greg, you find diverse people working at these companies as well, right? These are also companies building diverse teams. So when you look at all of the stakeholders inside and outside the organization, unless you truly focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, you cannot be a strong player in this global economy. You said something there that I think is interesting. We said many things, but one thing jumped out when you said to have the DNA to think about 
diversity, equity, inclusion on a daily basis, right? It's not something that you, oh, we have a board meeting coming up. I need to think about diversity and inclusion or, hey, it's the 15th of the month and we always think about diversity and inclusion. It's like it's part of the DNA and how you've built the organization. And I think that's something that people need to think about as they're starting and growing and building companies. You're absolutely right. It has to be in the DNA in every interaction and it can be done. It just takes patience, time, persistence. I repeat the same message over and over in my meetings and I request my leaders to do the same. And not only do we preach that, I would say that we also walk the walk because we intentionally look for candidates. Of course, I'll find the best candidate regardless, but we find candidates from around the world also from different industries that we think could be a great fit and they bring different perspectives. And I'll give you another example. You know, as we build these diverse teams, we also need to keep them engaged, right? Especially when the pandemic hit two years ago, we had to go to a 100% remote work situation throughout the world. And we had very little notice to do that as a global workforce. So we are a very collaborative bunch. We are very friendly. We are very interactive as a team. That's how we create innovation. Face-to-face collaboration is the way to go to create innovation. There's nothing to replace that. However, how do we do that in a remote work setting? At that time, two years ago, I did not know how long this was going to last, right? So we were very intentional about making what I call virtual water cooler talks. When you're at the office, you organically get to know your colleagues and you have these water cooler talks. And it's quite easy to do that, right? You just walk up and you talk to somebody that happens to be there. But how do we make those connections happen when everybody's remote? That's one of the questions we asked ourselves. So we experimented with several ideas. We had daily video calls because people missed each other and they wanted to do daily video calls. We listened to our team and we said, let's do that every day if that's what you wanted. And we also built an icebreaker app on our internal messaging tool so that this app will randomly match people up for a conversation and they can choose to chat, get on a call, video, whatever they want, and just get to know each other. So it will give them a reminder weekly to reach out across multiple locations, across multiple countries and time zones. So that's just one example of how we decided that Yes, diverse, but also you have to look at diversity of time zones and things that we had not considered in the past. The other interesting thing that you talked about there is, and this has been brought up by several people recently, is your diversity within your company has to match the diversity of your customers, right? And your clients and your partners. And that's an interesting concept. Again, something that wasn't talked about in the last couple of years, but has been talked about this year is, and one of the folks, actually the two episodes ago, the chief people officer of Remitly, she brought up, they are a remittance company. So they're sending money all over the world. And their clients are people who maybe work in the US, but families in Mexico or whatever it may be. So they naturally have a diverse customer base. But when you think about it, doesn't everybody naturally have a pretty diverse customer base. So you've got to have that employee base that matches that customer base from a diversity perspective. I think that's a great thought starter for a lot of people and lines up with what you said and others have said as well. Absolutely. A lot of times, yes, companies talk about diversity only in terms of internal teams. That's why I said, let's look at all the stakeholders of the company, both inside and outside the organization. And as you said, it's a great thought starter, because you can do a whiteboarding session about, okay, who are the stakeholders? You have to ask all of the team members, who are the stakeholders that you deal with, not only inside the company as your team, but also outside the company, beyond customers and clients, 
right? And then you kind of create a list of who they are, what the categories are, and who they are. And you come up with a big list and just asking your team will generate a ton of different ideas, I promise. Yeah, no, that's a great idea too. Well, how do you think we're doing as a payment slash fintech industry? How do you think we're doing with this topic of diversity and inclusion? That's another great question that requires a lot of self-reflection. I want to really emphasize that DNI is not just a line item for a board meeting. Like you said, I concur with you. They are not just the responsibility of a single department or one person or social media, but these initiatives are truly top-down initiatives that can be implemented today by teaching your team to ask simple questions, to ask themselves and of others, and to be inclusive and hear the answers. You know, it's one thing to ask questions, but it's also another thing to actively listen to the answers that we are getting. Sometimes the answers may not be what we want to hear, but they will definitely help us see progress. Because I have seen progress. There's a definite shift in the industry. The fact that we are even talking about it today is a sign of that shift, right? Because just a few years ago, it was more of a buzzword. And sometimes it was not even talked about. Giving something a concept and a name and talking about it is a huge first step that is very, very powerful. So I see that things are changing. I'm very optimistic about the future. And we can certainly do better as an industry. And I believe in hiring and mentoring diverse talent for leadership roles, right? Because I see that there's a lot of diversity among the junior mid-level roles rather than senior leadership. In my own company, so I focus on not just junior mid-level management roles, I also want us, all of us as an industry to focus on senior decision-making roles because this will make our businesses stronger. To achieve true inclusivity, all the organizations, all the stakeholders have to work together and to hire and just mentor and nurture, promote from within. I'm a big fan of that, promote from within. You mentioned we can do better by looking at more diversity within the senior leadership ranks. So what else can the industry do? What more can we do to elevate this challenge we have? There are several things that I want to share here. I could talk about it for a long time. I'll keep it somewhat short. First, we need to understand why this is important to business, right? Really thinking deeply about why DNI is important and what benefits it can bring. And also what intangible losses you're experiencing because you may not have it right now. I'm not going to blame anybody here because it just is. We have to accept the situation as is. Only then you can make true change, right? Without acceptance, you cannot make any significant changes. So start thinking about why it is important. And I talked about intangible loss because businesses don't even know what they don't know, right? These losses may have happened, but they're invisible. So as you know, studies have shown that companies with diverse teams especially at the top, are more profitable. So I would think, I would say that diversity is not just a feel-good factor, but it's important to the bottom line. And once senior leadership comes to an agreement about why it's important to business, it's very important to communicate that vision and the why to the rest of the team and keep communicating every chance you get. It has to be, like I said, woven into the, the DNA. And that brings me to the next point, which is we need to run people-centric businesses not just include the stockholders who are also very important, but all of the stakeholders when we're making crucial business decisions. I mean, we all know the great resignation is real, right? And companies are realizing the importance of strong people-oriented culture to actually walk the walk. We talk about kindness, compassion, empathy, all of those things. And the question is, we all understand those concepts, right, Greg? We all grew up with those concepts. We know those words. It's not a matter of not knowing it, but how do we implement it in the moment when you're not feeling it? 
it's all great when everybody is feeling great, everything is going well, clients are happy, everyone is happy. But when things are not going well, what do you do? How do you manage self, being self-aware and also recognizing other people's emotions and giving that space to hold that emotion regardless of what the issue may be, right? So that's what I mean by just having that people-centric version of running that company. And that's what culture to me is. It's not just about a few values on paper, but truly it's about how you behave and what you do every single day in every single interaction you have with any stakeholder. One final question, and we've sort of talked about this, but I think maybe we covered it from a startup perspective because I feel like people can create a culture in the DNA of the company from the start. But let's say it's a more mature company that doesn't have much diversity. How can they build that culture? How can they change that DNA so that diversity and inclusion becomes part of it? You're right. I know when you're a startup, you could start from the ground up, but sometimes rebuilding is more different than building because you have to undo certain things and then build upon it. I had to do it a few years ago as well for my own company. Like you said, it's not set it and forget it, right? You have to continue doing that. And I found out that we have gone away from some of our values and the way we do business, and I had to bring it back. And it took me a lot of time and patience to do so. The great news is every business, large and small, can do things short-term and long-term to build this into their culture, the part of the DNA. First, like I said, align the why behind this initiative and communicate it to everybody inside and outside the organization. And make sure that you also give them tips, do's and don'ts of what to do, what not to do to implement it. Like I said, everybody knows these concepts, but how do we implement it? It's very nuanced. I'm sure you would agree, right? It's not black and white at all. It's very nuanced. I found that taking the approach of, okay, it's very nuanced and I'm going to listen to my people. I have my own ideas and I know what I want to do, but how do I implement it? And to get that buy-in, I always tell my team, I will always listen to you and hear you. I may make different decisions because everybody has their own perspective. Whether I say yes or no to you, remember this, you will always be heard and I will consider your input as very important when making decisions. And when I live that and I actually, I tell them, people feel hurt. Even if they hear or no, they're like, okay, at least I had my input. And that makes the team more collaborative and stronger, this active listening and training everyone, not just leaders to do that. Again, it takes time and it can be done. That's one way of doing it. And let me leave you with a few points here, right? Like I said, making it a core company value, keeping it at the forefront of meetings and everyday actions. I mean, that's the foundation of doing it, especially when you're, like you said, a larger company that's already embedded in a different culture, maybe, right? And it starts with sourcing. You have to have an inclusive sourcing framework. What do I mean by that? Like, if you notice, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs in recent times come from diverse backgrounds. India is now a land of unicorns startups that are unicorns because they are either unconventional thinkers or sometimes they're the ones who question the status quo and they want to do something very different and disrupt the status quo. So the sourcing strategy for any company should also incorporate this principles of diverse hiring, where the emphasis is more on hiring people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, thought process, and so on, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. And while doing so, I want us to also learn to be okay with being uncomfortable. You must have heard the saying, be comfortable being uncomfortable. It's not so easy to do so. I've had many moments where I had to 
practice what I'm saying, you know, take a deep breath, take a step back. It's because I hire people and I encourage them, really empower them to say no to me. I just ask, give me data, give me your reasons, say no to me. I want to know exactly what's on your mind. So that's one of the challenges we also face as leaders is when somebody brings a completely opposite viewpoint and we have to say, may the best idea of it. Let's just try it out. Because a lot of times, especially in the chargeback business, Greg, like I said, we are forging a path and I'm making decisions without much data because it's the first time something has been done. I'll give you an example. We are the first in the industry to provide win rates very transparently on our system, real time, before pre-arbs and after pre-arbs. For some of your listeners, pre-arbs are when, you know, initially you may win the chargeback, but then the issuer says, nope, the customer gets the money back. So it's a loss again. Win rate may be 90% before those pre-arbs, but it may go down to 60% after pre-arbs. But you have to give that transparency to the client, right? That's the true win rate. Transparency is one of our core values that runs throughout the organization. And that's why we decided to give KPIs and deep dive analytics that are completely transparent to our clients about how we provide the right ROI for them. It was not comfortable to reveal to the client, hey, it's not 90%, it's 60%. We have to have that conversation explained because we are not in control of pre-arbs, even though it's not our fault or anything. Clients are not happy to hear, oh, it's 60%, not 90%. But that's what we do for our clients to give them the true ROI. On the flip side, we cannot just rely on KPAs alone, right? Like I said, it has to be embedded as a core value, only then it truly propagates to the most junior roles in the company. Yep, completely understand. Makes a lot of sense. Well, hey, we've covered a lot of ground today. I mean, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add, though, before we wrap up? I mean, I agree. We've covered a lot of important points. I would like to offer more resources for all your listeners if they want to educate themselves about chargebacks, fraud, and anything related to payments. Because at our website, we have tons of e-guides, blogs, white papers for everyone, and they can download it or read the blogs, whether they are a beginner or an expert. And that's just chargebackgurus with an S.com, right? That's correct. Chargebackgurus with an S.com. What's the best way for people to reach you? I'm always on LinkedIn. You can contact me on LinkedIn. And my email is also pretty simple, Shri, S-R-I-I at chargebackgurus.com. Okay. Well, Shri, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. So thank you so much for being on the show. This is a important topic. So I feel very thankful to have you on. So thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. You got it. It's my pleasure to be on this show. And I want to also thank you for this great opportunity to talk about my vision and my lived experiences. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 